are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are going to talk about primary care for people who inject drugs, and we would like to give credit to American Family Physician article, Primary Care for Persons Who Inject Drugs by Adam Visconti et al., January 15, 2019 issue. We're going to talk about some of the key points, touching on some of the medications for opiate use disorder, infectious disease screening and treatment, vaccinations, naloxone, PrEP, and safer injection practices. Paula, kind of give us a little bit of an introduction. Okay, well, providing primary care or medical care for people who use substances is really important. It's preliminary, but it's really important, and I think it's good to review the basics. And even though there's an emphasis on PWIDs, so people who inject drugs, many people use drugs via other routes, and they still suffer negative medical and, of course, social and everything other consequences from using drugs other than injection. But, um, of course, there are lots of medical kind of complications from injecting drugs. There are lots of people in the U.S. who inject drugs. There's about 750,000 people who inject drugs in this country, primarily opioids and meth. Those are the two most commonly injected drugs. They can be injected intravenously or they can be injected directly into the muscle. Most commonly that happens once people have lost venous access and they still need systemic access to their substance. People who use drugs, you know, we need to remember that they have far greater morbidity and mortality than their peers. And that kind of goes without saying, but it really is true. And there's a crude mortality rate of 2.64 per 100 years of injecting drugs. So really, your risk of dying is much higher from all causes, really. And people who use drugs and inject drugs are die about 20 years younger than their peers. If you think about a disease that shortens the life expectancy by 20 years, that's pretty remarkable. Yes, it is. The most It is, right? And the most common reasons why people die from when they have a substance use disorder, especially injection drug use, are via overdose, endocarditis, HIV infections, the sequela of chronic hepatitis C infections, pulmonary bone and skin infections, psychiatric causes, especially suicide. And we have underreported cases of suicide, I think often attributed to overdose. Violence is a big cause of death in our population and of course accidents. And we know that our folks who inject drugs are much less likely to access primary care than those people who don't. And there's lots of reasons for this. There's racial disparities, there's health equity disparities, there's many barriers, including socioeconomic lack of insurance. And then, of course, there are the psychological and emotional barriers like stigma, medical discrimination, and addiction itself often renders people disorganized and unable to present for things that other people would have as a higher priority, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I kind of always think about it like in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, it's when drug use really corrupts and hijacks your midbrain, which is is kind of akin to the drive to breathe and eat and survive. So once that has been hijacked, other priorities take a back seat. So getting your screening colonoscopy is a very low priority for people <laughs> when their main um, main concern is really just 
getting their next substance use, mostly not to get really sick from withdrawal. Anyway, do you want to talk, Darlene, about just a general approach in primary care to treating people who use drugs? Well, first is just recognizing when you have somebody who maybe is injecting drugs. And I think it's really important to have a very non-judgmental approach and making sure when you suspect or are asking questions, we're using open-ended questions. So some of the physical signs. So if you have someone who is actively using, we always we always have the classic where we think of abscesses and we think of track marks. What does that really look like? So a recent injection site, you're going to see sometimes bruising, sometimes where there has been repeated injections, you're going to see hyperpigmentation. This is typically in anacubital fossa, but you can also see it upper arms. You can see it in the neck, groin, hands, fingers, even toes. You also will see some venous sclerosis. Those are just some physical signs. Now, recognizing... Obviously, intoxication syndromes and withdrawal syndromes when patients present. You know, Paula, we we often, when you have seen it over and over again, it's it's for us, we recognize when someone comes in here in opiate withdrawal. It's common that frequently patients are diagnosed in urgent cares as a gastroenteritis. You know, they come in with diarrhea, stomach cramps, nausea, sweats and chills, and and sometimes even tachycardia with it, some dehydration. Those can be signs of withdrawal. And so recognizing that dilated pupils, again, is this a patient who periodically is coming in with signs like that, do I need to start maybe asking, hey, we can offer treatment. They are more likely to disclose to you that they have an issue with substance use when they know that you can help them. Just having that safe space and allowing that is going to give you some more opportunities. What other things do you do, Paula? Yeah, no, I think that's That's really important. Obviously, I mean, just a history and physical, right? Just going through someone's history with an open, curious, normalizing approach, having a client-centered approach to taking a history and asking questions about substance use, just like you ask questions about people's medical history, Mm -hmm. family history, social history, normalizing behavior and opening the door. And I like what you said. I mean, there's obviously objective screeners we can use. You can use the NIDA single question screener, which is basically how many times in the last year have you used illicit drug, prescription drug for non-medical use, et cetera. Or if you need to delve more into what and quantify drug use, you can use the NIDA modified assist or the DAST. And then, of course, you can use the DSM-5 to help qualify if someone does have a substance use disorder, the severity of such. So I think there's there's ways to assess this just like you do any other disease state. We use objective findings like these screeners, like I just mentioned, and then, of course, the physical findings, like you said, Darlene, and also urine drug screens can be very helpful as long as you're doing them. They're only helpful yeah. if you're doing them. And then just taking a history and linking behaviors as well to possible clues that patients may come in withdrawn, depressed, with failing relationships, failing ability to perform roles at work or at school 
school or at home and you want to delve deeper and see if there's anything that's causing that. Absolutely. No, that is fantastic. Yeah. So, I mean, the basics, so providing primary care for people who use drugs, I mean, first and foremost, you want to assess the patient's readiness to change and if they want treatment for their substance use. Don't assume that people do. People might want to, and often they do because addiction and active substance use is often not enjoyable, but some people are not ready to change. Absolutely. And this is where harm reduction comes in. And we talked about that in our last uh, podcast, so you can refer to that. But assessing people's readiness, are they pre-contemplative? Are they contemplative? And use motivational interviewing techniques to ask those open-ended questions and to use affirmations and reflections to make sure you get it right. And I loved what you said, Darlene, about making sure that you let people know that you can provide treatment because then it opens this, you know, whole conversation to what's possible, right? Now, if you're a provider that doesn't provide treatment for substance use disorder, you probably have referrals in your community that you can send patients to. But having that conversation so that you normalize and accept and create the culture in your clinic and your practice and with your patients that addiction is another disease that you treat on a daily basis, just like you treat depression and diabetes and hypertension. And so number one and foremost, you want to assess for patients' readiness to be treated and then present them with the treatments you can provide in your clinic, such as medications for opioid use disorder, medications for other addictions, and then of course, refer them out to other evidence-based treatments that we know are effective, like behavioral therapies, peer support, etc. And in your own clinic, you're capable of providing buprenorphine naloxone for patients immediately. It used to be that you had to do a data-wavered course to become certified to prescribe buprenorphine. Now there's an exemption to that rule, and we talked about it as well in one of our previous episodes, but providers can now start prescribing buprenorphine naloxone for patients with a diagnosis of opioid use disorder up to a limit of 30 patients. And it's indicated for outpatient treatment of opioid use disorder. And we know that it works. It saves lives. It reduces all-cause mortality. It reduces overdose events. And it improves retention in treatment and actually the treatment of other chronic diseases. You can also provide naltrexone to your patients. It's indicated for opioid use disorder as well. And there's actually a paper that now suggests that naltrexone in the injectable form Vivitrol may be helpful in combination with bupropion for the treatment of methamphetamine use disorder. It's not FDA approved for this indication, but there's some evidence that it may help reduce methamphetamine use. So, you know, you can provide the option in an informed consent kind of discussion with your patients that they could be treated in your setting, in your primary care setting with either of these medications if they have an opioid use disorder. And of course, you could refer them to a methadone clinic as well if they feel like and you feel like methadone would be a good option for them. I mean, really importantly, and we want to get this out of the way, not out of the way because it's not important, but uh, before we get into more of the medications and uh, medical conditions for treating people in a primary care setting, but we need to talk about naloxone again. And any patient who's ever used or uses opioids should receive a naloxone kit or a naloxone prescription with instructions. Now, it's interesting because it may not only be your patients who use opioids who need naloxone anymore. We just had a patient this week in our setting who is a pure methamphetamine user, and he presented for admission to our residential treatment program in what looked like classic opioid withdrawal. We tested his urine with a fentanyl test strip, and his urine was positive for fentanyl. And it seems like a lot of fentanyl getting and contaminating supplies of methamphetamine, benzodiazepines, marijuana, cannabis, etc. So even if you have patients who don't claim to use opioids, they should 
still have access to naloxone because they likely have peers who use drugs, who use opioids, or they may encounter contaminated drugs that contain an opioid. That's just something that you should do in your primary care setting. And that includes, of course, patients who are on doses of morphine equivalent, 50 milligrams or more, Darlene. Is that right? Am I thinking? Correct. Along with that, you can contact your local health department to find out where you can access fentanyl test strips. If you are in a practice where you do currently see and treat patients who use drugs, um, I would encourage you, well, we would encourage you to access fentanyl test strips for your patients so you can give them out. Our Department of Health here in Utah has them and has been very kind and generous in getting them for us. We've also been able to get them from some of the harm reduction websites we can order from. And if you can't provide them yourself, find out in your community who provides these and where you can refer your patients to get some. Typically, it's the syringe exchange programs or the classic harm reduction programs who will have access to fentanyl test strips. And a good resource just backing, um, circling around to naloxone in your primary care practices is to make sure you have something you can give patients in terms of instructions and education. SAMHSA has a great little toolkit that you can look up and print out, or it's a pamphlet you can order for free and have in your office. Or there's a very good website called prescribetoprevent.org. And it has everything you want to know about naloxone. And you can look under the tab prescribers. It has everything listed by specialty. So you can look it up if you're a primary care provider or a chronic pain doctor or emergency medicine. And it gives you all the tools really that you need in order to be a naloxone prescriber. So I just want to make sure that we're always doing this for our patients because really naloxone is a true um, lifesaver in, in reversing both fatal and non-fatal overdoses. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, other things that we want to do, I mean, in primary care settings, you want to do some level of harm reduction counseling for your patients who use drugs at every visit, just like we do when we see a patient who's using tobacco or a patient who's overweight or a patient who has other lifestyle behaviors that are putting their themselves at risk, either physically or emotionally. And that includes just educating our patients about overdose risk and reduction and infectious disease contagion and how we can help them with that. And then, of course, we also want to make sure and monitor and reduce other substance-induced harms that we see. And we talked about at the very beginning, like violence, accidents, nutritional deficiencies, and making sure that you're doing appropriate screenings for people who use drugs for intimate partner violence, safety, a safe place to live, access to food, etc. And then vaccinations, obviously, we're going to talk about that and PrEP and PEP. So I think let's move on and talk about PrEP um, right now, actually, because this is a thing that we can offer our patients. So take Away. Yeah, I mean, these these are really important. So we have treatments and in a primary care setting, whether you treat patients with medications for opiate use disorder or not, as a primary care physician, you have an opportunity to prevent them from contracting some of these terrible infections resulting from their use. And so it's important if you have a patient in assessing where they are in their readiness to change, whether they are in active treatment or not, offering them these resources because they are not interested in maybe um, active treatment does not mean that they would not be interested in a vaccine or PrEP. We still offer screening CTs to a smoker. They don't have to be quit. We still offer them a screening chest CT. This is the same principles. And so I think that's really important that we remember that. PrEP. So what is the criteria? So number one, what 
PrEP stands for, this is pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV. And to be eligible for this, they have to have a negative HIV test with no signs of HIV in the past four weeks. They do need a creatinine test. You need to have a normal creatinine, either laboratory evidence of hepatitis B immunity or absence of infection without hepatitis B immunity. And this is an opportunity if they do not have hepatitis B immunity to, again, offer the hepatitis B vaccine. So that'd be a great time to do that. Then your follow-up once a patient starts PrEP is you need to repeat an HIV test. And if this is a female of childbearing age, pregnancy test every three months. And then you need a creatinine clearance and obviously other STI testing every six months. Generally, it's every every three months you're doing a follow-up HIV test every six months creatinine clearance. Not really that difficult. It is not that burdensome to do this. I think sometimes we think, oh, there's there's too many requirements. It's not that hard. All right, vaccines. The Pneumovax 23 for ages 19 to 64, that category, if you have someone who is also using heavy alcohol use, cigarette smoking, has concurrent lung or liver disease or any other conditions that you would normally give a pneumovac for. Obviously, we offer if they do not have hepatitis AB that is offered to all patients, tetanus at the initial visit and then every 10 years. What else, Paula? And can I add, um, I think we should add in COVID-19 vaccine to yes. this list, actually, because yeah. I just adjusted yeah. my slides for this talk and added COVID-19 because we have very convincing evidence now that patients with substance use disorder are much more likely to suffer deleterious effects from COVID-19 infection than other people. They are considered high risk. So we need to encourage and provide COVID-19 vaccine series to all of our patients who use drugs. Both our influenza, yeah, as I say, our influenza, our typical just health maintenance. Yeah, so those are just as far as just our routine care. Skin and soft tissue infections. Paula, do you want to talk about that. Sure, yeah. I mean, infectious disease management as a whole, skin and soft tissue infections are incredibly yeah. common with people who inject drugs, uh, especially those who inject stimulants, methamphetamine, because of the effects on the veins. Uh, it's vasoconstrictive, and so it causes more localized damage. Although you see plenty of skin and soft tissue infections in people who inject opioids. So you want to monitor this and just make it part of your routine history taking to ask patients, do you have any abscesses right now? Do you have any areas of your skin that are red, hot, tender, or that you want me to look at? It's very commonplace for people to inject drugs to have shame around this, and they hide these infections. They have ways to take care of it themselves themselves, which can lead to further infection, obviously, and spread. But it would be very common for patients to present to the emergency room or urgent care or your primary care clinic needing evaluation for cellulitis or abscesses, which require incision and drain. And you would treat this just like you do other um, cases of cellulitis and abscess and treat appropriately, uh, remembering that the most common bacterial agents in skin and soft tissue infections with these folks is uh, strep and staph, sometimes MSSA and sometimes MRSA, and uh, may be helpful to culture your 
abscess uh, fluid to make sure that you're treating it correctly if you need to give antibiotics or if abscess care just involves IND alone and you don't have extending cellulitis. But monitoring for this and considering treating patients with the cleanse washes and mupiracin nasal treatment may be, an, may be a consideration for people who have continued infections. But before all of this starts, if you can provide people with education on how to inject safely and cleanly and provide them with alcohol swabs and access to clean syringes and clean needles, as well as clean cooking ware, including cookers and sterile water, etc., we're must, much less likely to have infections on the skin and soft tissue. Absolutely. Some of the more serious infections, so bacterial endocarditis, osteomyelitis, septic joints, all can be other things that we need to watch out for and take into consideration if you have someone that comes in presenting. So really in being aware of bacterial endocarditis with injection use tends to be more right-sided. You don't always have a heart murmur with that. Classically, we usually look for. So if you have a really sick patient, don't miss that. In any of your patients who inject drugs, if they come to you or you're examining them or evaluating them in whatever setting and they have severe new onset back pain or severe new onset hip pain, or they're unwell with hypotension and tachycardia and fever and night sweats, really stop and evaluate the patient. These patients are sicker than, than your typical 22-year-old, and they may be hiding an osteomyelitis or an epidural abscess or indeed bacterial endocarditis, and they really do warrant a good workup. I think it's pretty easy to overlook folks who are injecting drugs because they you think, well, it could be withdrawal or it could be that they're manifesting some other you know, psychological distress, but uh, these infections are unfortunately common. And speaking of which, we should be diligent in the primary care setting of always screening for infectious diseases. And so regularly testing our patients for bloodborne diseases such as hepatitis B, hepatitis C, HIV, and also consider whether or not you should check for tuberculosis, depending on the patient's living environment, whether or not they've been incarcerated recently. And then regular checking and routine testing for sexually transmitted infections is imperative as well. So make sure that you're continuously screening for the need to screen for chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, trichomonas, bacterial vaginosis, which may not be um, sexually transmitted, but really common in this population. And don't forget that you don't just do a urine amplification for chlamydia and gonorrhea or a, a vaginal swab. You may uh, you need to also do throat or oropharyngeal swabs and um, anal swabs on patients who are high risk. So unfortunately, hepatitis uh, C is incredibly common in patients who inject drugs. The hep C V guidance from the IDSA recommends that there's no delay in treating hepatitis C in patients who inject drugs, and that we actually see similar adherence and sustained viral remission rates in non people who use drugs to people who use drugs. And this is kind of a con not really controversial, but it's an interesting topic because many insurance companies, including some remaining, and specialists will require patients to be sober and abstinent from drugs before they will treat their hepatitis C. But the guidance from the Infectious Disease Society says that we should not delay and we should treat hep C concurrently. And if you 
can possibly treat opioid use disorder at the same time and give, you know, direct acting antivirals for their hepatitis C at the same time, you actually, um, there's evidence that shows that you have increased adherence to both treatments, which makes sense, right? We see some increased buy-in. So if you delay treating hepatitis C in patients who are using um, substances to wait for them to be sober, what, I mean, basically you just lose them. You just lose them to follow up. So, and they continue to not only develop their own possible severe sequela from chronic hep C, hepatitis C, including, you know, cirrhosis and skin manifestations and behavioral manifestations, but also they run the risk of sharing their hepatitis C infection with others. That's something that we can consider. There's obviously guidelines on which medication to choose for hep C. There's now many pan-genotypic medications that we use, and the treatment has become far more simple relative to treatment of old, which involved months and months of interferon and antivirals. So going through the process here in Utah, we rely on Project Hep C, Project Echo to help guide our treatment, and it's a fantastic resource. We present patients with hepatitis C to Project ECHO and they help that team helps guide us with which agent is appropriate and if there are any drug-to-drug interactions and any nuances, especially if you have a patient who has cirrhosis, whether or not it is compensated or decompensated, or if they have any other complications like they've had a history of prior treatment or they have active hepatitis B infection or HIV infection, they help you with those things. Likewise, in the primary care setting, you can refer to gastroenterology, although the burden of hepatitis C now in this country and actually in the world is so high that the hope is that more primary care providers will start treating hepatitis C. And again, do not delay treating hepatitis C in patients who are positive, who have a high, who have a viral load and a genotype while you're waiting for them to stop using drugs. That is no longer what we should do. Do you have anything else to add about hepatitis C, Darlene? No, I think that's really an important key. Yeah. And it- is, it's like you said, Try to treat both at the same time. We had a, um, the clinic that I work at does a remarkable job of treating hepatitis C, actually, I have to say, I have to boast about it for a minute. Thank you to the nurse practitioner who's, who was the very first provider in my clinic, and she's just champion, hep C champion. And we just, I just saw a patient who was, um, he came to see us for syringe exchange in my clinic and also to talk about getting back on buprenorphine naloxone because he's sick of using and he's on the streets and tired of the life. And interestingly, he had been worked up and treated for his hepatitis C infection in December of last year. And he had been active in the clinic and got the correct labs and had the education, got started on the medication, picked up all his medication, and then never returned to clinic until now. So you know, nine months later, he didn't ever return for his SVR. And he's, he reported that he took every dose of his medication. He took Maverick for eight weeks. He didn't miss a dose. He was really invested in getting treated. He continued to use drugs the whole time and he has continued to use. He frequents syringe exchange programs whenever he can. So he has a clean supply of injection material because he really values that he might still have hepatitis C, doesn't want to share it. And, you know, he did an SVR on him and he was curious. And it was really exciting. I was really excited to tell the nurse practitioner who had treated him that it had worked, like he no longer had hepatitis C. Now, 
Of course, he continues to use injection drugs. And we had that conversation. We actually restarted him on buprenorphine and retested. We did an SVR, retested him to see if he has any 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 viral load at all and also did a genotype just to see if he has the same genotype if he did have a viral load to see if he got reinfected because there's a risk of reinfection but it was interesting it was it was just that he was invested in getting treated even though he was not ready and at that time in stopping using his drugs so yeah it was pretty cool i love that example paula for two reasons that you just display there is number one look about about how much time would have passed he would have gone without treatment if you had waited until he had decided to seek treatment. Also, just being able to engage and just offer him treatment, offer him harm reduction strategies. He, he knew that, hey, the door's always open. I can come here when I want help. And he did. And now he's in treatment and he's hep C free. Yeah. It's great. And so, and you've reduced, yeah, and you've reduced his risks now. It is true. Other chronic diseases that can be exacerbated will probably need some extra management. Hypertension, this can be primary or secondary to substances used, should still be offered treatment. Cardiac disease, lifestyle and substance induced as well. Pulmonary diseases, high incidence of pneumonia that we talked about before asthma, tobacco-related disease. There's often co-occurring to tobacco-related disorders. And now with vaping becoming such a thing, we're seeing so much, so much more problems with that. And then diabetes, you know, it's very difficult to keep somebody's blood sugars under control when they're actively using much more hypoglycemic episodes as well when they're going through the stresses of the intoxication withdrawal cycles. And so they can be incredibly difficult to manage. Absolutely. And for some reason, I don't know what it's been lately, but we've seen a lot of patients with type 1 diabetes and addiction. I don't know. I don't have any evidence to back this up or I haven't looked into it, but chronic diseases um, like Ehlers-Danlos and uh, hemophilia, those diseases that typically cause significant pain, especially sickle cell anemia, all of those diseases are a risk factor for opioid use disorder. And of course, I'm not suggesting that people who have severe pain conditions and are managed with chronic opioid therapy automatically have opioid use disorder. But anytime any human is exposed to chronic opioids, there is a certain percentage chance that they will develop an opioid use disorder. So uh, maybe that's something, I don't know what the link is with type 1 diabetes, but we seem to see a lot of type 1 diabetics in our clinic. So yeah, just making sure that you don't forget that they that they also have chronic diseases that deserve to be treated and and patients deserve to have the same kind of attention and care that our other patients do in terms of counseling counseling them about nutrition and exercise and of course the most important thing you can do help them quit smoking or help them quit tobacco like you said because that's going to not only help them physically but um, also help them maintain sobriety from their substance um, of choice yes so yeah well i'd say the last thing that we want to talk about and of course this is just a primer this is a real brief overview of primary care in the for folks who use drugs and that is to be aware of the psychiatric 
comorbidities and co-occurring conditions that occur with people with substance use disorder. There's really high rates of substance use disorder and psychiatric disease. And you could argue which is the chicken and which is the egg. But regardless, both occur and you need to treat both in parallel. You need to treat them both. It used to be that when someone had a substance use disorder, we would want to wait a period of time and, and have a period of sobriety before we would go ahead and make a psychiatric diagnosis and proceed with treatment. And that's no longer true. So if patient presents with an anxiety disorder, a major depressive disorder, obviously classic bipolar disorders, whether one or two, personality disorders and PTSD, which are kind of the most common things that you see in the psychiatric world with people who use drugs, you want to address, go through, diagnose, do the scales, recognizing that some of it may be circumstantial and related to substance use, but some may be underlying, precedent, and, and very complex. I think it gets very interesting when you have psychotic um, or psychosis in combination with substance use disorder. And this is probably one of my favorite topics <laughs> with my psychiatric colleagues is, is this person really schizophrenic or is it psychosis due to long time stimulant use? <laughs> but regardless, you want to treat dismaying yeah. and uh, symptoms and symptoms that are causing dysfunction. And we also want to recognize that many, many, many people People who have substance use disorder have a history of trauma. They have high ACE scores. Uh, we know this is true and you want to assess for that so that you can be aware and that you can provide trauma-informed care and be very, very careful and compassionate surrounding someone's past. Also, remembering that being addicted and using drugs in many ways can be traumatic in itself. And it's a self-perpetuating cycle where your lifestyle becomes more and more unmanageable and chaotic. And you're put in situations where you may be victims of crime, victims of violence, subject to discrimination and inequities. And life is perpetually traumatic. And we often, often see women, especially, in, and I'm sure men too, who have repeated sexual trauma all throughout their adulthood while they're using substances. It's just this terrible recurrent cycle. And we see both genders, all genders of humans who are repeatedly assaulted and have physical sequela and trauma in the setting of their substance use. So we want to observe and treat and again, approach with trauma-informed care in their trainings and websites and colleagues and peers and organizations that can help you become a more trauma-informed uh, practice. Yeah, I couldn't have said that better, Paula. I think that's an excellent point. And, and I like that you said our patients have such chaotic lifestyles. It's really hard for sometimes for us to relate and understand what they're going through and how hard it was for them to just get to us and to even think about treatment. And so sometimes you just have to just understand that this is this is hard for them just getting just getting to where where they are just in front of you that day this is that's a big win for them do everything absolutely. you can absolutely absolutely right and it can be really frustrating to treat people with addiction especially in the primary care setting or in the hospital setting emergency room setting because the the effects of their drug use are so apparent to us you know we have someone with devastating infection like you know decompensated cirrhosis or bacterial endocarditis and we just think why can't you just stop using but we, we remember that addiction is a complex recurrent relapsing condition that affects brain function and behavior and that's the NIDA definition of addiction and that addiction is classically hallmarked by the fact that people continue to use 
in spite of life, in spite of negative consequences. That's the very definition of addiction. So if you're scratching your head or more than that, you're swearing in frustration at your patient who's going out to the parking lot to use drugs, who's coming in impaired while they're the custodian of their young child, they're continuing to use while they're pregnant. Just remember the definition by ASAM of addiction, which is addiction is a primary chronic disease of the brain. It involves reward, motivation, memory, and related circuitry. And it's characterized by the inability, inability to consistently abstain, impairment in behavioral control, craving, diminished recognition of significant problems with one's behavior and interpersonal relationships. So that's the very definition of it. So if you feel frustrated, if you can't believe why people can't seem to stop using, just remember the three C's of addiction. It's lack of control, it's craving for the drug, and it's use in spite of consequences. And we get to provide compassionate, trauma-informed care in a way that meets people where they are, recognizing that at some point, maybe they will be ready. And if you leave that door open, maybe they'll come back. If you're that kind, compassionate space, you provide with them and give them the medical advice, advice and assist um, like we do for other conditions. They'll know that you're a safe space and they'll come back two or three years down the road and say, you I know that you'd be willing to help me because of that conversation I had three years ago when I wanted to get on PrEP or when I came in to get my abscess drained. So that's exactly it. Yeah, somebody comes in with a soft tissue infection, we're their primary care provider, offer them PrEP, offer them a vaccine, do whatever you would do for any other patient who would need that primary care at that time. I think I think that's that's the summary of this talk is we just need to make sure that we're, we use those opportunities and they seek care to offer what they need at that time. Prevent, yeah, prevent this Absolutely, sequela. including treatment for their addiction. <laughs> yeah, and offer a treatment and say, you know, this is, this is a terrible problem that you have and you know there's treatment for this and recognizing that not all treatment works for every person. So being willing to rewrite the story for your patient. Well, it didn't work before, but let's keep trying just like we do for other chronic diseases and keep working working. Don't give up. It's worth it. It's worth it. Every single person you see with substance use disorder is a human and a patient just like our other patients, and they deserve every bit of attention that that we can give them. Maybe even more, because I promise you they have experienced medical discrimination from from many other sources. So don't contribute to that. Uh, be And if you don't know how to respond or you don't know what trauma-informed care is or how to take a good substance use history, there are really great resources. ASAM has a national guideline. Um, that's the American Society of Addiction Medicine. They have a little pocketbook and an app and you can go onto ASAM website, asamnationalguideline.com and download that. PCSS has training resources. It's pcssnow.org. If your uh, practice or your community or your hospital needs more direct technical assistance with managing patients with addiction, anything from how to start a consult service, how to get more people in your practice prescribing buprenorphine, how to order Vivitrol. You can access the Opioid Response Network grant, and this is a SAMHSA-funded grant that will give you technical assistance from an opioid-savvy professional provider who will be paired with you and help you with your request. So if you go to opioidresponsenetwork.org, you can access that resource. It's a fantastic resource. And then, of course, if you want to learn more about buprenorphine waiver training, you go on the SAMHSA 
IMSA website. And you don't need a waiver anymore if you want to treat up to 30 patients, but if you just need to learn more about buprenorphine and how to help people with uh, with opioid use disorder, really recommend the SAMHSA Tip 63, which is free from SAMHSA. You download that onto your laptop or you can order a paper copy and they'll send it to you. It's a lovely book. It's really easy to read. It has every tool Very you can ever want. And then of course, it really is. And thanks again to Drs. Visconti and Greenblatt who wrote the article in American Family Physician. We took a lot of material from their article for this talk. Thank you and uh, send us any questions. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at The Addiction Files. So find us and send us messages and questions and we'd we'd love to respond. Thank you. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.